Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Hans Weinberg, and my story in Japan at Penn State. Today, I will be talking to Christopher Craig on his book, Middleman of Modernity, Local Elites and Agricultural Development in Modern Japan, which came out with Hawaii uh, last year, August 2021. Uh, Middleman of Modernity is a further research and engaging study of the role of local elites in the modernization of Japanese countryside in the pre-war era. Agriculture, Greg writes, is given short fifth in the history of Japanese modernity. Farming and modernization seems to exist as at opposite ends of a spectrum. This is true both for contemporary historians who tend to neglect agricultural modernization and they give an image government dedicated little resources to agriculture. Thus, with a state focused more on the emblematic goals of mechanization, urbanization, modern, and the modern military, it fell upon local elites and villages across the country to bring rice production into the modern era. Middle Modernity is a comprehensive study of the role of these elites. The book is started with histories and stories of individual actors that remains closely connected to Japan developments, present a history of agriculture from the early Meiji period to the post-war American occupation. Uh, Chris, if you don't mind calling you Chris, uh, thank you for coming today. Thank you for that wonderful intro and for the chance to talk about my book. So uh, we usually start here with uh, autobiographical autobiographical questions like what brought you to this story? Can you please tell us more about your way to this book and your own background as well? Sure. Um, so I actually have a history with Sendai that goes back farther than my own history as an academic. So I, I, I had sort of dropped out of university and I came to live in Sendai for a year uh, just to um, teach English. I, I didn't know anything about Japan. I didn't have any particular interest in Japan. It just was a place where I could make a bit of money. But um, that ended up being the, the background for everything I did afterwards. So when I went back to school, I had the explicit goal to to do research in Japanese history, and it was to do research in the history of Miyagi. So um, that led me through my uh, undergrad, finishing the undergraduate through my master's degree at, at UBC, and then to my PhD, um, uh, all the way through as a historian of Miyagi and uh, of the agricultural history of Miyagi. Thank you. And you st- on, the, on the cover of the book, right? I wish people can see it. <laughs> You can, we can wave it around, both of us. Uh, you have this uh, picture of Mayor Straw Sandals, right? Uh, that's him, right? Uh, Kamata uh, Sanosuke? Hope I pronounced it right. Uh, why him? Why, why, why is he on the cover? Why, why his story is so emblematic and compelling? And also, what is he doing in Mexico? Was, if you spoke about Miyagi, was he following the footsteps of Hasekura Tsunaga? <laughs> Uh-huh, what is yes. in Mexico there? <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, yeah, the guy on the cover, as you mentioned, his name is uh, Kamata Sanosuke. Um, he was famous in pre-war 
Japan as the Waraji Soncho, so mirror straw sandals. Um, and that name and, and his fame had a lot to do, well, it had to do with, with, with two things, really. He was this champion of local development for the, the sort of small farming village that, that he was from and that he became mayor of. Um, so he led or was, was instrumental in, in overseeing a project to drain uh, a lake that was a lake kind of lake swamp wetlands area that was really limiting the productive capacity of his village and, and contributing to, to poverty and, and making making things difficult for people that live there. Um, so he got famous because of his role in that. And then he sort of expanded his fame through his personal eccentricities as mayor. Um, uh, he dressed, he was called Mayor Straw Sandals because he had a very ascetic, um, very consciously aesthetic uh, mode of dress. He would dress in the, the barest sort of poor ratty clothes and, and wear the, the, these, these grass sandals that were, were cheap and sort of, uh, you know, very humble. And so, you know, he got this image of a guy that was sort of um, would, would persevere in his own life and limit himself to the most limited kind of consumption because he was dedicated so fully to the development of his uh, village, um, and you know, it's very, very, very possible to debate how how sincere these sentiments were. Uh, but at any rate, he his fame very quickly sort of spread outside of Miyagi, and he became known uh, across the country as as this 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 figure of of unparalleled devotion to his 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 job in the local administration and as mayor and as basically father figure for this village that uh, he was given entire credit for its success. But he could definitely afford shoes, right? <laughs> he was, oh yes, he yeah, was a pretty rich guy, right? You can see. Well, I mean, I don't think he actually, you know, he didn't have a secret life where he was, you know, drinking cognac and and you know wearing suits and associating with with courtesans or anything uh, at night when no one was looking. Um, I, I mean, I think he pretty much just did basically live for what he was doing. But he also had his own particular ideological slants that came into sharper focus when we got into the wartime period. So I have, I, I bookend this particular book with his story that the, the sort of two halves of his life kind of, um, you know, up to the point when he becomes Mayor Straw Sandals is chapter one. And, you know, this serves to present an image of what the ideal of the Meiboka, the middleman of modernity that the Meiji government was really relying upon to, to shepherd um, agricultural development. You know, he, he sort of represents uh, an ideal version, but an incredibly rare version. I mean, there was only one Mare Strauss handles, um, and there was not a whole lot of people that that did anything like what he did, even though this was supposed to be the standard for how agricultural development would develop. So his example at once serves to sort of illustrate in the flesh what, what Meiji planners were looking for, but then also to illustrate how absolutely incredibly unlikely it was that many of these people would appear and do what, what the Meiji government actually wanted them to do. <clears throat> and then at the end, I come back to his later career, um, following him from the basically Taisho through through to the war and the end of the war, and um, you know he, without really changing what he was doing, uh, there was a tone shift and, and um, uh, a sort of shift of what he was doing on the national stage during the 1930s, late 1930s, uh, when the country was mobilizing and when the government was really interested in in 
mobilizing the agricultural villages in service of the war effort. Um, and he became a very loud proponent of how the villages could work harder, they could dig deeper, they could provide more if they only tried harder, and that this is something they absolutely should do. So, you know, we see a, a, a very clear shift um, from a guy who in the 1900s, 19, early 19, well, up to 1910-ish, was uh, a vigorous advocate on behalf of what he thought needed to be done in his village to mobilize government funds and government support in support of his efforts to to improve his village. Um, and then by the 1930s, he is an, a vigorous advocate of villages working harder to provide more for the war effort and for the central government. So it's a, a flip-flop in a way with which doesn't involve a tenko in the sense that we normally understand tenko from the period. So it's a more... <laughs> yeah. What he was doing in Mexico, I mean, I was very surprised uh, about the about the Mexican venture. Right, and this is actually the vignette that opens the entire book, right? Chapter one. Um, so, so he ends up in Mexico uh, at the middle. Uh, I think it's nineteen oh six, if I remember correctly. I should know this, um, but uh, he he goes to Mexico after he thinks that he's put the final touches on the drainage of this wetlands in his in his home village, right? So he's been working for decades. His, his father and his grandfather both worked to try and, you know, achieve or try and obtain local support and also central support to drain this, this wetlands. And, you know, in 1905, 1906, he thinks that he's got it all set up. You know, he's got the people in the local area lined up. He's got um, the drainage uh, work underway. Um, and he's got money in place to get it all done. So he decides, and I think this is a decision that he actually made earlier, that he wants to have significance on a much wider stage than, than just Kashimadai, just northern Miyagi. Um, he, he, you know, makes vocal claims that he wants to, to make a difference on the national level and, and for Japan as a, a, an actor in an international context. And so he is concerned with what he understands to be a, a looming Malthusian crisis in Japan. So it's an overpopulation. This is in, this appears periodically throughout the pre-war. This this great looming crisis of of demographics, where there are too many children being born and not enough farmland to to set them up or to provide for their food. This kind of stuff. So you know, in 1905, he decides that he is going to lead a group mostly from the local area that he's from, but he's got support from the, some politicians in Tokyo. He, he spent some time as a diet member. Um, so he's got contacts with some of these, these, these big guys in Tokyo. Um, and he takes this group and he goes to Mexico. Um, so he had been following, there had been a previous attempt in the 1890s to establish a farming colony from Japan in Mexico that, that ended up going nowhere very quickly. Um, but he still sees the promise. And so he takes this group, mostly from Miyagi, down to the southern border of Mexico, um, where he has a, gotten uh, permission from the, the Mexican government to, to look into the establishment of a farming colony of Japanese farmers there. So he goes there, he's checking out, you know, what kind of stuff they can grow. He, he becomes very excited about the idea of growing coffee there. Um, 
and you know he's he's checking out the weather and he's working with the the ambassador and and some of the local officials to try and figure out how this would would work um and it's at that point when he gets a telegram from the governor of Miyagi saying that the the project to drain the the wetlands has fallen apart, that, that there's conflicts between the foreman who's supposed to be leading the construction, local support has, has collapsed, there's been um, some disasters, some, some, some uh, accidents during the construction that have killed people, and that the whole thing is about to fall apart. So the governor sends this request by telegram to tell him to come back immediately and fix this problem. Um, and you know the reason why I picked this as the as the vignette to open the whole thing is because it's, it seems like such a such a strange thing for for the governor, you know, this public official to to be calling this private individual who's not married yet. He's not anything. He's he's a guy in Mexico trying to establish as a private individual a, a farming colony to alleviate Japan's um, overpopulation crisis, um, and and he's being called back by the governor to come and oversee to fix the problems and and oversee the the drainage of this wetland. So. Um, yeah, that's the story of his Mexican trip. And even after he gets back, he's he's still very interested in the Mexico trip um, and, and the colony. Uh, he publishes a book as soon as he gets back that's uh, detailing the potential of, of, of this particular area of Mexico. Um, and he only gives it up when his, his, well, the myth goes that his mother shames him into um, staying and becoming the mayor of of um, Kashima Dai, and it's at that point that he gives up his his aspirations for for you know this this wider significance on the global stage, and his his taste for fancy clothes and elite politics and and this kind of stuff. So in in that one moment, he drops all of that. He puts on the straw sandals and he becomes the mayor of Kashima Dai with never a hope to become anything more. Yeah, and I, I ask about Hasekura because, uh, well, that's the more famous connection between Miyagi and, and, and Mexico, right? As you know, uh, Kato Satoshi, our mutual friend, uh, he gave a really good lecture uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Sendai about Hasekura and, and this connection and how no one really cared about it in uh, until Meiji and then sun, suddenly, for the same reason, like making a bigger impact for Sendai and for Miyagi on the world stage, like they, they, they raise him out of obscurity. So I see parallels there, but he didn't invoke this connection, right? I don't think he made any reference to it. I, I don't even know to what extent Kamata would be aware of, of Hasekura Tsumena. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's actually, yeah. I would love him. I would love it if it would, it would definitely help my own research about the Indati Masamune, but... Well, you might want to re- read that book that he wrote about Mexico more closely. Then maybe he mentions them somewhere in there, and I missed it. <laughs> it's it's possible, but I think more more clearly he was following in the footsteps of this failed colony that had gone a decade earlier. So. Yeah, um, yeah, it's actually important that he doesn't bring it up because it it means that in retrospect we think of what those connections is so important, but they actually. Uh, propped up. At least this is what uh, Carson says. Saying anyway, I want to go yeah, back. And, to... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say I'm also um, shamelessly trading off of the name of Hasekura as um, I am deeply involved with the Hasekura League, centered in um, Tohoku University, by which uh, we've created this network of interconnected universities in Europe and and Japan and North America. So yeah, I I, I am involved in the enterprise of making Hasekura more prominent than he was in the past. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, 
as much as I would love to talk about SQL, I want to go back to uh, the more uh, the more um, to, to get back to him uh, to to Kamata and hydrology, <laughs> right? Uh, get back to ground. Actually, get back get back to to ground and Miyagi actually to water <laughs> Miyagi and talk about. I mean, this is why he comes back, right? This is the big project that kind of guides him and the people around the local local elites in Mayboka about. It's about hydrological hydrology and hydrological disputes, right? Um, I'm interested in this because about you you, met, you you make a really good point about technology and how it changes attitudes towards the environment. I mean, and I mean, this is of course a big part of modernization. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about how this impacted people in Miyagi and how this change came about. Yes, yeah. So um, you know, the particular part of Miyagi that I'm interested in is the area that's known as Semboku, which is the north north of Sendai area. And um, hydrological problems are are a key feature of of all the agriculture in, in, in north northern Miyagi. Um, it's a it's a rice producing area, almost entirely rice, and. You know, rice has a complicated relationship with water from the beginning. You've got to have a lot of water to grow rice. You know, it's wet, paddy agriculture. Um, so you've got to be close to these water sources. But those same water sources that, that you need um, are often very destructive. And this is the case also in northern Miyagi very much. So, you know, in Kamata's case, it is this um, wetlands, this lake and wetlands that surround it called Shinainuma that's that's in his area of Kashimadai. Um, and this is, as I said, you know, it's this multi-generational project that, you know, began with his grandfather um, far back into the Edo period and it continues with his father and then uh, he inherits it from his father. He works together with his, both his father and his grandfather and then he carries it forward after both of them die. Um, so, you know, the case of Kashimadai and Shinainuma is one of the three types of hydrological problems that are common for villages in northern Miyagi. And these problems are sometimes create um, sort of mutually exclusive interests between communities. And this is what happens in my second chapter. I detail an event that, uh, you know, highlights the, the mutual exclusivity of interests um, in uh, neighboring regions that face different types of hydrological problems. But in the case of Shinainuma, it's it's this big wetlands that, that inhibits rice production in two ways. One uh, kind of active way and one more of a passive way. So um, the way that, you know, it mostly attracts the ire of people in the neighborhood and um, partly, you know, compels him and his ancestors to um, try and, you know, uh, solve the problem is the fact that Shinainuma just floods a lot. Um, it was estimated that one out of every three years, more or less the entire rice harvest in that village was destroyed by flooding. So you could only count on, um, you know, two years out of three having a rice harvest uh, there. But, you know, because the area was rich, you know, this wetlands has very rich soil, um, the, the, the region has plenty of water, those two years were enough that you didn't fall into poverty from the third, or you didn't fall into starvation. It was impossible to get very prosperous, but you could survive. Um, so that's the active way that this particular wetlands, and this was true in a couple of other areas as well, but, um, you know, Shinainuma is the success story um, here, or the drainage success story. 
The other way that it inhibited agriculture was that, uh, and this is what uh, Kamata and his, his father and grandfather knew as well, is that if you drained it, you had incredibly rich soil underneath that could be transformed very quickly and easily into, into very um, productive paddy land. Uh, and so this was uh, at least half of the motivation uh, in the drainage. And this is what four Meiji officials who, who gave Kamata all manner of awards afterwards when they gave him credit for, for draining this. Um, and, you know, this, this is more important to his own legend was that it opened up a vast area of new farmland that quickly became very productive and that propelled um, Kashimadai and you know, even the areas around it into into prosperity before the war hit, right? So in, in these years before the war. So they went from abject poverty, um, you know, barely scraping by with with uh, regular flooding that, that regularly, um, you know, destroyed their harvests to being one of the most prosperous rice-producing regions in Tohoku and, and even, you know, up there uh, among rice-producing villages in Japan. In other areas of Semboku, so, you know, Close to this area. So in chapter two, then I moved to just a little bit um, over to the, uh, I guess it's the east from from where Kashimadai is. And here we've got a problem that's somewhat similar. There's a body of water that floods and causes the same kind of problems for uh, a town called Nango that's in uh, a district, one, one district. Um, but that body of water is not actually a natural body of water. That is a reservoir that's been created specifically to provide water for communities on the other side, on the east side of the reservoir um, in the other district. Uh, and so, you know, we have a conflict of interest here that cannot easily be resolved. Um, you know, uh, the, the Nango wants to get rid of this reservoir. They have plentiful water resources on the other side. Um, you know, they're on the west side. So the rivers that run through, run through Nango before they get into Mono. Um, there, there's water resources aplenty for, for Mono. They have too much water. That's the problem. Um, this, this reservoir floods and, and destroys their crops. Whereas in the other side, uh, to the east of the reservoir, they have no local water resources and they rely entirely on the reservoir to grow rice. Um, so this was a, a sort of hydrological order that was forged in the Edo period um, with the construction of the, of the artificial body of water and you know various types of damming of rivers and redirection of rivers uh, to provide water for Mono. Uh, for the, the district to the east while attempting to not cause too much damage to the district to the west. So it was a, a balance of interests enforced by the power of the state that um, failed to satisfy either side, but also prevented complete devastation from either side. Um, when the uh, Han government uh, collapses, when the, when the new Meiji government's put into place, this... Um, order, or at least the, the, the authority that was enforcing this order, is momentarily at least gone. And it's in this vacuum that the conflicting interests of the two areas propel a very serious conflict that develops over the future of the hydrological order in the community and to which side will survive. So what both, you know, uh, Kashimadai and Kamata and this other conflict that takes place to the east really illustrate is that modernity or modernization in agriculture proceeds on a different timeline than modernization in you know, uh, mechanization in factories or military modernization or economic modernization in the, the central 
areas of Japan. Um, and so when we see this intersection of technology developing to the point where it can actually affect meaningful change in the hydrological orders, that doesn't really come until the end of the 19-0s, 19-aughts, and the beginning of the 19-teens. Um, and that's when, of course, Kamata oversees the drainage of Shinainuma. This is also when they begin, the prefecture and the farmers begin, just begin to make progress on the third type of problem that was that was a big hydrological problem in northern Miyagi, which is um, the river system. Um, so there is a very powerful river that runs through northern Miyagi uh, that only represented a threat to agriculture and had been a threat that had been to some degree managed also since the Edo period, since um, the, the, the Han government was in, involved with it. Um, and it is only in the 19-teens that it becomes possible to prevent the, the regular flooding that happens along the, the banks of this river and that eventually you know, about 10 or 15 years later, allow the river to be exploited in service of agriculture rather than just prevented from being a threat from agriculture. So this is, you know, a story of hydrological modernity that, you know, is, is separated by decades from what we would consider modernization in, in other sectors in Japan, or at least initial transformative modernization. Um, and, you know, this is one of the points that I try to develop in the book, that agricultural modernity is it's, it's a different thing than, um, oh, it's of course related, but it, it's agricultural modernity, agricultural modernization proceeds in, in, in a separate path or, or, or a, diverge, a, a connected but, but separate path from um, modernization and modernity that are not agriculture based. Yeah. And if, if I may add, like one thing that I, I was wondering about and was reading it is like you don't really see much of a difference from attitude towards the Edo period uh, towards the environment in the Edo period. So it's not there's not a break with the majors that like they lived in harmony with nature and they didn't want to, uh, and then suddenly they want to control nature. Uh, yeah, that absolutely not. That? Yeah, these, yeah. these are all about continuity, all of these things that they're doing. I mean, Kamata's project is literally the same project that, you know, 70 years ago was started by his grandfather, um, 70 years earlier. Um, the the conflict over the, the, the reservoir in Mono and Toda, the, the second chapter, that's a leftover from interventions into the environment that were done during the, the earlier period. And the, the battle with the river is similarly, it's, it's the continuing battle that is only finally won, you know, in uh, the Taisho period, right? Or, or begins to be won in the Taisho period. Yeah, and you see a lot of those continuities like in David Fedman's work on forestry and, and other, other fields that uh, Japanese and the other period, Westernization didn't bring some kind of a different attitudes toward nature. I'm wondering if it did on various on various uh, levels, much more nuanced. But I, I love it how you show the continuities here. Uh, that you know, it's the same people doing the same thing. It just technology is, is different, but they want to use technology. Yeah, and I, I think if there was something of an ideological change or, or a conceptual change relating to nature that takes place, it's not, you know, a movement from uh, existing in harmony with nature as, as it stands to, you know, wanting to transform nature. There was always the desire to transform nature. It just was a lack of ability. What if there's a difference in conception, it's that it's concerning what was possible. You know, the only thing that was possible in the past in the, in that you know, 
context of say this reservoir was to to balance interests and to 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 sort of maintain a regime of lowered expectations, right? Everybody could want more, but it was not possible to get more. Um, whereas mechanization probably threw this, this conception a little too far in the other direction, where, where it became uh, the, the attitudes sort of seemed to embrace the possibility that it was possible to get everything you wanted from, you know, by, by the application of technology to the waterways and to the environment. Um, and you see this a little bit in the resolution to the conflict over this, this, this reservoir. Um, you know, there's, there's, it becomes a pitched conflict and the local governments on both sides of the reservoir become involved. And it actually proceeds almost to the point of, of, a, of a widespread open violence between these, these two regions. Um, and it's finally put down by a, a very active um, intercession by the prefectural government to prevent this conflict, to bring the parties involved to a, a series of meetings in Sendai to try and produce a plan to uh, resolve their problems. And the plan that's produced under the auspices of the prefectural government to resolve this conflict promises to give everybody what they want. They're gonna build vast new irrigation channels from far away parts of the prefecture to provide water for the Eastern um, district. They're gonna drain this, this reservoir to protect the people in the Western district and everybody is gonna get everything they want. There'll be plentiful water in the dry areas. There will be um, removal, entire removal of the threat of flooding in the um, Western areas and, and everybody will be happy. And so, you know, this is signed off on, this is what ends the conflict. And it becomes immediately clear that there is no way that any of these things are possible. Um, you know, the prefecture, uh, has promised to build these waterways, but they're very lucky in that the uh, Sino-Japanese War breaks out soon after, and they can use that as an excuse that no no infrastructural projects can be done when, when we have to fight this existential crisis war that's that's brewing on the continent. Um, and and then it's just the prefectural government basically never mentions it again. So um, what, what actually happens is that the former leaders of this conflict in the two areas realize that they are accomplishing nothing by fighting each other. And they have this ceremony where they um, cut their hair and mix it together and bury it in the sand to indicate that they're all going to work together. I, I don't really, can't really parse the symbolic logic of that one, but you know, um, yeah, so, so, you know, they give it up as a bad deal and they decide that they're all just going to have to basically continue to live as they did in the, in the Edo period with this balance of dissatisfactions um, until it eventually, hopefully, becomes possible to, to do so. Yeah, it's actually a good segue to, to the next question because uh, I want to move towards relationship with, a gov- with central government because one big, uh, one theme that goes back a lot in all works about Tohoku and Miyagi, like for example, in Nathan Hobson works, uh, Kawanichi's Kawanichi Sensei work, and others, uh, is the Tohoku's marginality in its relation to the center, right? And I want to think a little. I want to talk a little bit, uh, a little bit more about about this, and and in relation to also in relation to politics, and the relationship between the central government and those elites, those Meiboka, and what the Meiboka is supposed to do with for the government and how the government perceive them and what actually how actually they act right because they, they want to see them as apolitical right yes and they very much want them to be apolitical yeah um right so so this is the system that i argue that um basically 
undergirds or maybe represents the entirety of what um, Meiji bureaucrats uh, considered agricultural policy, right? Um, so it's based almost entirely on, at least for, for a period of time in the mid-Meiji period through, through to the late years of Meiji, on the idea that they need, from the government's point of view, they need people in the farming area. So in this sense, you know, it's not just Tohoku or, or Miyagi that's marginal. Um, from the perspective of the Meiji bureaucrats, you know, all farming areas are marginal. Um, and they're marginal in a very um, sort of concrete way. They're marginal because the bureaucrats, they don't know what's going on there. They cannot um, really push farmers themselves in any direction. Um, they're, they're not going to put money at it. So, so you know, without pumping a whole bunch of money into these villages, which they probably don't even have, to be fair, um, they, 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 they're not able to direct agriculture. They're not able to try and promote the sort of changes that they want to see happen in agriculture. Because agriculture is central to this project of modernity, if for nothing else, in order to feed the country, um, to maintain uh, a growing population and to provide the tax money that pays for everything else, because it's, you know, it's, it's the uh, farmers that are being taxed um, to, to provide for the revenue for, for the Meiji government, right? At least until they start fighting wars where they get a whole bunch of money from China. But um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, in this context, what they want are local agents. They want local agents who understand the situation in the villages because the bureaucrats don't, who understand how farming works and what the problems are because the bureaucrats don't, and who understand how to motivate their local communities to affect the sorts of changes, to increase production, to adopt what might be rationalized production methods. And really the bureaucrats have very little idea what these methods would actually be either. Um, and so uh, these, these meiboka are conceived of as the local agents who will serve to, um, you know, transmit government goals and translate government goals for local populations and translate them into effective changes to, to agriculture. And they're going to be able to do this because they're locally prominent. Um, so they're supposed to be people who have earned fame and renown at their local level by being um, sort of selfless servants of the community. Go ahead. But that's the same time the popular rights movement and at the time those people, a lot of those people, I don't know about Miyagi per se, but uh, at least in Western Japan, uh, area I know better, uh, leading the popular rights movement. So how does it, how does it Yeah, come? I mean, the popular rights movement itself is a, is a complicated animal. Um, and that, the complicated, uh, and the, the popular rights movement in so far as it intersects with the Meiboka, um, sort of the, the, the original Meiboka who are supposed to be these, these leaders, these local government, locally renowned um, central government agents uh, in the villages. Um, you know, in the 1880s, when the countryside is reeling from economic um, turmoil, right? Uh, this is the point in time when we have the, the Matsukata deflation going into effect, when, uh, you know, it's responding to the, the, the inflation that takes place. And, you know, inflation in Miyagi and in a lot of rural areas had been very good for farmers, right? Rice prices go up and farmers are making a ton of money. And they're all sort of recently become landowners with the, the change to the land system. So they'd all been sort of uh, anomalous tenants-ish things underneath the, the Edo period. Yeah. Um, That's not land. the actual story. That's not, not the actual, it's not the regular story you hear, right? You hear about how the Matsuoka 
uh, deflation has really hurt the villages and lead to all those like big icky around. Yeah, well, uh, the deflation does, but the inflation before that um, is is very good for them. Yeah, um, because rice prices go up. And so what happens in Miyagi and what happens in other areas is these freshly minted landowners um, invest in what they know, right? They've got extra money coming in from rice. They're able to get loans from banks based on their profitability and they borrow money and they buy land. That's, that's That happens all over um, rice producing Miyagi and it happens in rice areas all over the place. Um, and then the deflation hits rice prices. The deflation specifically targets rice prices uh, and rice prices fall through the floor and farmers all over the place default on these loans that they've had. So not only do they lose the new land that they bought, but they put up their own land as collateral. And so this results in um, a semi tenantization or full tenantization of, you know, these farmers all over the place. Um, and it also provides a unique opportunity for those of their neighbors who were canny enough to to sort of navigate these these changing, these, these tumultuous economic waters to come out ahead because all of a sudden they're able to buy up the land that now the, the banks have sort of foreclosed on. Um, and in some cases, they, they actually are able to, to buy it incredibly cheap in bulk when those banks themselves collapse. Um, and that's the case with Saito Zenuemon, who becomes the largest landlord in Miyagi and the second largest landlord in all of Japan, um, beginning during the 18, uh, late 1880s and the 1890s, when he buys up uh, collapsed banks' uh, land holdings that they had foreclosed on in the local area. Yeah, and, and this actually leads to, to, I want to ask more about the tenants. So, you know, they have this complicated, because what your book really shows is how complicated the relationship. We think about, I mean, at least in the general histories that we read, we think about uh, agricultural sector, rural areas as got one, uh, kind of one block, but actually you, you show how it's so complicated. There's different groups and different areas uh, and different people and different interests. And like you have the government on one side, you have the tenants on another, you have the landlords, you have different generation of landlords because the Miboka of the 1900s are not the same supposed ideal Miboka that the Meiji government thought about, right? The uh, Edo period. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, really, this, this, this shift from the ideal Miboka to, to these um, more what should we say, self-interested, um, maybe realistic uh, landlords, is happening even as these ideas are being formulated in the government. I mean, they're already sort of too late. Um, you know, and what Kamata shows is that Kamata is sort of, at least in the way that he's understood by the government, he is is a leftover. He's a kind of a relic of the earlier era that, that um, you know, does not have other examples in the Miyagi area, or not many of anybody that even remotely resembles him. You know, the process that I just sort of outlined about uh, this this change of land, this is the generational change, the, the most important, at least in this period, generational change with landlords. And it's not really a generational change. It's not like the children taking over from the fathers. This is the older set of elites who had um, attempted to expand their land holdings uh, as uh, individual landowners, um, they, and whose prominence was based more on their sort of reputation in their communities that were based on all sorts of, you know, public roles that they had served and their families had served for generations. Um, they are dispossessed. And, you know, the people that become these vigorous advocates for popular rights, uh, at least in Miyagi, and, you know, it's very debatable how vigorously they did advocate for this in Miyagi's case, but um, they are these hard-nosed um, you know, 
opportunistic landlords who make their fortune after the collapse of these these other um, uh, landowners, less less land or lords, and more landowners. Um, these these Meboka who could ar- be argued to be the model that that this mag- agricultural policy is is based on. At least they had the local reputation. They had uh, some uh, indication of of public. Uh, mindedness in their local areas and stewardship of their communities. Um, but, you know, this is much less true of the landlords that emerge and become, uh, you know, assemble vast land holdings um, after the dispossession of these these earlier um, elites. Yeah, and and I want to move a little bit towards, I mean, after to the area of like the post-Russo-Japanese war. Um, there is a feeling of crisis after the war, right? And that you have a crisis also in relationship between the landlords. I mean, you show there's a crisis between the landlords and the government. Is this because they don't live up to the ideas? I mean, why why is this why is this crisis? What's um, what leads to this uh, breakup? Not breakup, but crisis in relationship. Yeah. So um, you have before the the Russo-Japanese War, you have uh, a concerted effort and an active effort on the part of the central government to draft laws, to enact laws, um, to support uh, these new landlords as the agricultural leaders of their local community. So they give all kinds of laws that that enable them expanded rights in order to to seize common lands, to develop them as paddies, um, which they do, and then they they keep as their own um, uh, personal lands. They are able to, um, you know, command extended rights in... um, managing water. Um, so if they're uh, able to, you know, to consolidate paddy land. So instead of having a bunch of irregularly shaped small plots of rice paddies, um, they're given a purview to, to, to oversee the consolidation of these paddies into more logically sized, rationally sized paddies that will rationalize production and, and water use and, and all of this sort of stuff. But in order to do that, they're able to use various means to seize land from other people, to reassign tenants to different plots, to take control over lands that they had not had control over ahead of time. So, you know, this these, these, these laws do accomplish one part of what the government was aiming for, which is to rationalize production, to increase production, although it, you know, they understand it's going to take a while for these to sink in and, and increase production. Um, but as you sort of referred to earlier, the, the, there's another goal associated with Meboka as well, and and this was the apolitical goal. So we might think of you know this this goal of of, of fostering apolitical Meboka. Um, you know, it's easy to think of this in terms of you know elite political parties in the center. You know, this is the area of the Minto and the Dito, right? When the the popular parties that came out of the popular rights movement are are vying for seats in the Diet, um, and you know there was some hope that that well. I mean, the government had some expectation that that the Mayboka would remain apolitical and stay out of this. And as you mentioned, you know, this is a, a hope that is in some cases um, unrealized because there are a number of landlords who, who rush to join the popular parties. Um, in northern Miyagi, there are landlords that do get into the political parties. Of course, they become local representatives. They're almost necessary by that point in time. But you don't have a lot of very vigorous criticism of the 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 veto of the bureaucratic parties or, or the central government. Um, the more important political role or, or apolitical role that the Meboka are hoped 
to serve by the central government is to separate local communities from politics entirely. So, so not just the Mayboka themselves, but the entire villages they're in to prevent, um, you know, the, the tenant farmers or, 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 you know, individual independent landholders from developing ideas that might veer towards, uh, you know, land redistribution or reconsideration of property rights in certain ways or, or, you know, at the, the, the far end of the spectrum, emerging into some sort of mass-based criticism of the central government or even socialism. Um, so the Mayboka are supposed to insulate communities. They're supposed to be uniting figures that, that obscure any sort of different interests in property that may exist um, uh, in the local villages. And what they do instead, these landlords who are given these bolstered rights, these expanded rights, these um, police, uh, they, they get police to enforce their tenant contracts um, on rents and on rice quality and things like that. Um, so this accomplishes the productive goals or, or promises to accomplish the productive goals of the central government. But at the same time, it is absolutely not accomplishing these goals of, of creating prosperous and sedate, uh, content uh, rural communities. Instead, there's increasing impoverishment, what's this word? Impoverishment of, of, of the, of the um, you know, these tenant farmers. They're, they're put into an increasingly desperate situation and their ire is certainly growing towards landlords themselves and it threatens to grow towards um, the central government. You know, you don't get peasants, uh, not peasants, tenants who are, you know, launching criticisms at the central government. This doesn't happen. But what they're doing that begins, well, their, their discontent itself creates concern among um, central officials. And after 1907, they begin to form cross community unions of tenants. And this really, really concerns um, the central government. Um, still, these, these, these cross unions are not not presenting any direct criticism of the government or threat towards the government, but what they are doing is really undercutting this, this government ideal of keeping communities isolated and separate. They don't want solidarity between communities. They don't want contact between communities. They don't want anything to go across village boundaries. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the birth of this uh, kind of tenant league, which happens first in Miyagi um, in 1908, um, to great significance. This is one of the sort of climactic chapters of my book. But um, <clears throat> not only that, though, but, you know, landlords begin to increase their holdings dramatically. And landlords that have land holdings in more than one village also break this government ideal of isolated communities. You're not supposed to have connections between villages. You're not supposed to have absentee landlords. Uh, government bureaucrats are very concerned with absentee landlords because of these two factors. They increase um, uh, you know, discontent and they um, you know, stretch across these boundaries. And actually a third concern too is that you know, the people who are the landlords that are benefiting from this legal support and, and expansion of, of legal rights are supposed to still be the stewards of the communities they live in. And if they are owning huge plots of land in areas that they don't live and, and don't you know, work in the local government, don't uh, oversee local development projects, and then this is the antithesis of, of you know, the Mayboka ideal, right? This is extraction from the communities without providing anything to them. Yeah, and I, I was surprised to see the government, or at least the courts in some cases, uh, take the size of the tenants' 
in a number of right. ways. So were the landlords. The landlords were very surprised to see that as well, too. And, and you know, this is uh, chapter five begins with uh, Saito Zanwim on the largest landlord having an absolute breakdown on the editorial page of the local newspaper. Uh, apoplectic at the fact that the courts are not supporting him in this fight. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, and we, we talked about it in, uh, in, um, also uh, not now, but another opportunity we had to talk about it. But still, compared to other places, when you show compared to Western Japan, tenant protests, even though on the surface, Miyagi, with the Saito company being the biggest landlord in Japan or the second, big, uh, second biggest. biggest. Yamagata Homa family was the biggest one. Yeah. It seems that the tenants with their early victories will be very active and lead to high tenant protests, especially as we move towards the rice riots and the 20s. Of course, the economy changes. And then, of course, uh, the economic uh, crisis, uh, 1929. Uh, but you don't have as much tenant pro. Why is that? Well, I mean, it, it's, it relates to what we were just talking about. I mean, it relates to the fact that the, the tenants not only won you know, in, in 1908, 1909, but they were, they, the courts sided with them, right? So they, they won, they won in every possible way, this conflict that they, that, that occurred, you know, at the end of the first decade of the 20th century in Northern Miyagi. And it was a victory of such significance. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't the fact necessarily that the tenants had banded together and been so successful in their collective action. It was the fact that the local courts were backing them. It was the fact that the government was backing them. It was the fact that bureaucrats in the central government, at the same time as this, um, you know, conflict is raging and being lost by landlords, they are rewriting these laws that supported landlords, that extended rights to landlords, that put landlords in positions of power in order to personally oversee um, agricultural infrastructural improvements and, and riparian work and stuff like that. And instead, rewriting these laws to give the government a much more active role in overseeing these and, in fact, in funding these more than they ever had before as well. So they were removing the extended rights to landlords and also removing them. I mean, in a sense, this was a dismantling to a certain degree of this Meboka ideal as the root, as the core of agricultural policy, right? So it's seeing this victory. And the contracts are rewritten all across the area. Uh, the tenancy contracts are rewritten all across the area where the tenants had, um, you know, had risen up against their landlords. Um, and uh, they're rewritten in ways that reflected basically all of the demands that the tenants had. Um, so the, the, the fact that this was backed by the government and the courts, the fact that they were entirely successful, inspires landlords all over Tohoku to voluntarily... Uh, to some extent, rewrite their contracts, or in many areas, you know, in Miyagi and in surrounding prefectures, the tenants also sort of join together with the expectation that they're going to have the same results. And the landlords have the same expectation. So they give up quickly rather than extend this fight and have courts get involved in their local area. And they voluntarily, well, after a brief conflict, voluntarily rewrite their contracts. So this this conflict results in rewritten tenancy contracts to the advantage of tenants all over. Northern Japan, northeastern Japan. So, how does it again? I'm going back to quote unquote the regular story uh, we see about rural misery leading to uh, extreme to agrarianism and to fascist movement or quasi fascist movement. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how those all those young officers that running about Tokyo killing uh, officials. 
um, are from uh, those rural regions. Uh, how does it relate? Uh, how does all those lo- local uh, land politics and class politics, if we can call it like this, uh, how does it relate to mobilization towards war, to to, uh, to mobilization for the empire, to the rise of fascism? How does it all relate? Because it seems to be much more complicated than, again, the usual picture of rural misery leading to extremism and fascism. Yeah, in, in Tohoku and in Miyagi, there's there's a particular timeline that, that um, develops relating to both, you know, tenant, further tenant, um, landlord-tenant conflicts and to, um, you know, the interaction with sort of imperial expansion, um, continental um, jingoism on the part of the Japanese government, and eventually just imperial enthusiasm, um, militaristic imperial enthusiasm. Um, This happens in in the Miyagi region um, maybe later than it starts to happen uh, in in other areas. And I I would argue that it's still related to this this victory and and the outcomes of it. So, you know, if we look at the remainder of the 19-teens, which is almost all of the 19-teens after this conflict, uh, these conflicts, um, you know, we have these greatly, from the tenant's point of view, improved tenancy terms that exist here. You also have a quiescent population of landlords who have been chastised by this process, right? So landlords are not aggressively pursuing their own interests during this time. Um, they're not trying to increase rents. They're not doing evictions. They're, 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 they're not doing the things that landlords later um, do and, and cause uh, great Um, discontent with. So, you know, in 1918, when the rice riots break out, um, they're greatly muted in in Miyagi. Um, There are a a few sporadic kind of incidents, but you don't get um, the smashings and the the rioting and and this kind of stuff uh, in Miyagi to the extent that you get in, you know, central Japan or eastern Japan, uh, western Japan, I should say. And, you know, this is part of it, I I, I would argue. Um, And then continuing into the 1920s, when landlords, there's a generational change at landlords at this point. So a lot of, um, you know, the sons are taking over from their fathers um, and, um, you know, they don't have the same experiences that their fathers had. They have discontent in their own ambitions. And so from the middle 1920s, forward, you begin to get some testing of the waters by these, these, this new generation of landlords in Miyagi. Um, and there are a couple of prominent incidents in which they try to evict tenants or, or unilaterally raise rates with, with uh, rental rates with tenants and, and terms and stuff like that. Um, and the response in Miyagi is for the, the tenants to you know, look back to the example of 1909 and to form into unions and they, 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 they link up with the Nichino, the organization across the, the country, and they begin to sort of link up because the Nichino as a whole is linking up with uh, the Dodo parties, like the labor parties that are developing. And it's this moment in the 1920s where there's a promotion of joining labor politics with tenant politics and um, creating a, a big proletarian, um, propertyless party that, that will cooperate in urban and rural environments. And, um, you know, it's, it's this kind of organization that takes place in northern Miyagi in response to this new aggression by landlords. Um, and, you know, this is kind of a, this is kind of a disaster because the central government 
does not want to see a proletarian party happen and they take aggressive action to prevent it. And so the this new surge of sort of strength that was going to be put against these newly um, emboldened landlords is taken away at a stroke. Um, and, and the company that moves quickest and most decisively to exploit this weakness is the Saito Corporation. Saito Zenuemon is dead by this point in time, but he, before he dies, he makes his own family land holdings into a corporation. Um, and so his heirs are still in charge of it, but they are in charge of the company rather than the owners themselves of the land, although they really are. Um, and they face off against tenants in what looks to be shaping like another decisive battle that, that you know, Saito, the, the patriarch of the family had lost in 1909 and 1910 but um this time they win with with absolutely you know the government is not going to risk any kind of proletarian party coming in they're not going to back propertyless tenants against propertied um landlords anymore uh and they uh unilaterally back they absolutely back without exception the, the saito and this this sets off landlords all over the prefecture so the 1930s um, this just happens at the end of the 1920s into the 1930s. This is what sets off the more, uh, what would you call it, active, more more bouncy um, tenant-landlord conflicts that do take place in Miyagi. You know, the 1920s are the period of tenant conflicts in the West. Um, and these are based a lot on problems associated with absentee landlords, right? So the people are living in villages where there are no landlords. Their landlords live off in Osaka or where they live. And um, this is the basis for discontent in, in the West in the 1920s. In the East, in the 1930s, the landlords are still there. The absentee landlordism is not ever a big problem in Miyagi. Um, and when there are absentee landlords, they tend to live one or two villages over rather than, you know, far away in distant urban capitals or anything like that. Um, so these conflicts are based on the fact that landlords are now, and again, this is a period when a new Malthusian crisis is sort of being worried about everywhere. The population has in fact expanded greatly and it's expanded greatly in Miyagi as well. Not, not entirely unrelated to the fact that, um, you know, agricultural production has has really improved after 1910. So these, this work that the landlords had done in the 19 aughts comes into fruition after 1910 and the government's more involved with managing waterways and stuff. All of this pays off and there's a, an expansion of the rural population in Miyagi, um, which of course means that there is more competition for land um, because you know the farmland is not growing to the same extent that the population is. And so landlords begin mass evictions in the 1930s. Um, you know, they're able to find a tenant who will pay more than the tenant that's on the land. And um, in many places, they just throw them out and they call in new tenants. And this is fought at the late 1920s in the courts by the tenants, you know, asserting rights to the land that they've tenanted and um, they're defeated. Uh, you know, the, the courts consistently deny these rights and allow for the evictions. And so this is the background for the tenant conflicts that do develop in the 30s. But related to militarism, you know, um, I wanted to talk just a little bit about Manchuria, if I could. I think you were interested in, in talking about this as well. Um, you know, this was not equally true in all areas. So not in every village did the landlords, you know, turn quickly to um, eviction and, and higher rents. Um, in some places, the... It, in most places, tenancy was based on a personal debt from the tenants to the landlord. So, um, you know, the, the rents were actually 
interest paid on the debt rather than rents on the land. So the, the farmers were farming land that they, in many cases, had owned in the past, but they had fallen into debt and defaulted on payments. And so the land was um, foreclosed on by their landlords. And now their rent was actually, you know, um, maintaining maintenance on the debt that they owed their their landlords. So in some places where they turned to evictions, these debts were not enough to deter landlords from seeking the higher profits from ex- charging higher rents, putting new tenants on. Um, they were willing to sort of eat these debts that would more or less be unpayable if their their tenants were, were put off the land. In Nango, which is the village that was involved with that reservoir conflict, the landlords decided that the, the, the debts were more important than, uh, that more profitable maybe than, than trying to charge higher rents. So they tended not to evict their tenants there. Um, and then this ties in in a very interesting way with Manchuria and the, the colonization of Manchuria because um, the one of the key features of Manchurian colonization in Japan is this project that's launched, uh, the Manchu Bunson um, uh, Seisaku or Hoshin or whatever, whatever you'd like to call it. That's, that's sort of backed by the government and very vigorously backed by the, the Manchurian army as well. Um, that is a plan to divide up villages. So you take a village that's poor in Japan, you ship off half its population to Manchuria. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very much part of the, the discourse surrounding this, that they're going to be sending these to land that's not being used. Of course, it is being used, but, you know, the, the idea is it's empty land that can be broken for farmland and it's going to be beautiful farmland that just has been wasted up until now. Um, so this is the plan that's promoted all over the place. There are only a couple villages that actually end up doing anything close to sending half of their village over and establishing um, village mark two in Manchuria. Um, instead, it's mostly isolated groups from villages that end up going over. But the place where this idea is born is Nango in Miyagi. Um, it's a plan by uh, a agricultural high school teacher who um, you know sees all of these second sons of farmers uh, in Nango who uh, are not going to have lands because their 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 tenant farmer fathers are are don't have enough land to give it half of another piece to a son right it's already been divided up over generations since since Meiji um, and so he initially falls on this idea of of emigration as a solution and he looks to Brazil at first um, uh, he thinks about America but but all of these places in North America are closing off the Japanese immigrants at this time this is the middle 1930s um, and so eventually he decides and he you know he attracts the attention of, uh, of some central military figures at this time he decides that Manchuria is the place to go you know this has recently been more or less um, seized by Japan it's recently been opened up as a place that Japanese immigrants can go um, you know there's been a couple years of the government promoting these so-called uh, military immigrants these soldier immigrants that are supposed to set up farms and basically provide security for Manchuria um, and his idea is that we'll break up Miyagi, uh, break up, not Miyagi, we'll break up Nango in half and send all of these second sons who don't have any land waiting for them over to Manchuria. We're going to establish Nango 2 
in Manchuria, and the two villages will cooperate across the ocean to bring prosperity to both. So this will open up land, so everybody that's left in Nangal 1 will be able to have larger lands to work with, and we'll have a whole other set of production coming from Nango 2 in Manchuria. So it solves all of our problems at once. Um, now, this is his idea, and he initially, you know, he gets support from these these, these central figures, Kato, this this I, I, this sort of immigration ideologue, agrarian ideologue guy, um, and you know, he gets his students on board. They're all enthusiastic. He starts to put together a group and he sends them basically home with permission slips to get signed off on by their parents. And virtually none of the parents will sign off on these permission slips. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, they don't like this idea. Um, but he, you know, he talks to them and basically he, as he's doing this, as he's trying to organize his group, he's also pushing against the, the established village authorities, right? The, the, the mayor and the mayor's office and the landlords that control the local administration. And they hate him and they hate his idea um, because all of these tenants that, that are going to be owing them money, that do owe them money, are suddenly going to be taken off the land and, and sent to Manchuria, where presumably they're not going to be paying the money anymore, not going to be owing them money. They're going to default on their, on their debts. Um, and, you know, it doesn't help the landlords if the remaining tenants are allowed to have bigger lands to work on. That's, that's going to benefit the tenants. It's not going to do anything for the landlords, right? Um, so uh, they vigorously oppose this plan. Um, they try at every turn to, to sabotage these plans. Um, but as they're doing this, it's becoming very popular in the central government, in, the, in Tokyo and among these bureaucrats that are especially concerned with Manchuria. This is the solution to their Manchuria problem. This is also the solution to the village problem in, uh, you know, across Japan, these impoverished villages, these overpopulations in rural areas. Um, it's going to solve these problems at a stroke. So enthusiasm is growing there Well opposition among the administrators is growing in Nango. At this point, the same parents who are going to refuse to send their children to Manchuria become vigorous advocates of, uh, of this plan, entirely in order to thwart the landlords that control the town. Um, and it's as you know, central policy adapts and central policy is evolving so that the government is going to come in to assist these, these Boonson plans, right? And Nango landlords have been invested very, very strongly in keeping central government and bureaucrats out of Nango entirely. They've, they've turned down these various kinds of um, uh, credit unions and collective purchasing groups and all, all of these kind of different initiatives that have been promoted from the central government. That bring in just the slightest bit of bureaucratic oversight to organizations in Nango. They've blocked every one of these from coming into the village. Um, they entirely blocked the, 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 the Keizai Kosei Undo, um, this, this, this movement that's kind of a rebirth of the local improvement movement from the, the 19 zeros that isn't designed to you know, give government support to villages, to, to help them create these organizations that are going to um, you know, work and to bring government money actually into villages. And they've blocked it entirely. They, they refuse to cooperate at all. So this promotion by the tenant farmers of the Nanko, the, the Boonsong plan, is to break the control of these landlords, the, the really tight control in Nango. And they succeed. So, uh, you know, the, the government signs on with this program as designed in Nango. Um, it becomes promoted from the center. It's, it's, it's promoted everywhere. They, they focus on Nango as the birthplace of this. Um, and, you know, they begin to have like marriage ceremonies for immigrants that are going off that are overseen by central bureaucrats in Nango itself, because this is, this is where it comes from. And, and 
the landlords are utterly unable to prevent any of this. And this opens the door for all of these programs that they had been blocking to come into the village as well. And then when the time comes to send their kids to Manchu, the tenants just refuse to do it. So <laughs> very few people from Nando yeah, go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember because I think I, re- I read this book and I, I read the, well, the book, I read the chapter and it's like really completely changed and complicated everything I thought about the, uh, about the, about those mobilization efforts, how the way the class and economy and personal relationship between people, how all of this kind of played out in this really in a small but very symbolic village. It was it's really fascinating and really changed how I thought about uh, the mobilization of the countryside. Yeah, I mean, it was an unexpected thing for me to find, too, because um, I'm not sure how much Tohoku might be at variance with the rest of the country then, because I know Louise Young has written about Manchu immigration and said that the landlords that she looked at were enthusiastic proponents of it, so that the landlords were, were wanting to push their tenants out so that they could, you know, reassign their lands and charge higher rents to other people. But this is absolutely not the case in Nango. I mean, the, the the landlords were in absolute opposition to this plan from the beginning. Yeah, and I guess it's, it's a case for looking looking on the ground and looking for regional variation and the fact that all those big uh, like national uh, kind of policies, how do they... they, they play out differently in different places. Now, we're, we passed the one-hour mark, so I want to wrap it up. You have a fascinating chapter about uh, about SCAP. Um, so in, really, really briefly, uh, the end of the war, Americans come in. What happens? How, what, how does the system adjust, or did it completely disappear? What, what, what yeah, happened? Yeah. Um... So, the yes, the war ends um, and SCAP comes in and SCAP gets there and they send their agricultural um, sort of investigators around to see the state of agriculture um, because, you know, this is, they're facing an actual crisis when, when they arrive. I mean, you know, there's been years and years of war, um, depopulation in the countryside, uh, the agricultural, the, the systems of distribution of agri- food and agricultural goods are, are broken and and non-functioning and farms are not producing anything like uh what they're supposed to be producing so um you know the 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 guys are sent out the the, the technicians for skype or uh, scap <laughs> are, are sent out um and uh they they survey they survey agricultural production and distribution and systems and they're really not impressed with what they see they, they say that you know the the potential of the soil is, is far from being realized that you know it's uh the government has been deficient in in trying to um you know oversee any sort of modernization or improvement um in fact standing in the way rather than helping, um, and that what they very aggressively describe as feudal um, relations between landlords and tenants are uh, preventing, have been very effective in preventing any kind of rationalization of production. So um, they see completely lost opportunities. They, they fail to appreciate the improvements that have taken place. Um, and very specifically, and I'm not sure how intentionally, they fail to see the changes that have taken place during the wartime because the wartime approach of the government, I mean, if we're going to talk about dismantling utterly the this, this Mayboka-centered uh, 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 leadership of, of agricultural development and um, 
you know, this, this uh, support of landlords over tenants, this gets reversed during the war um, in very significant ways. In fact, my next project is going to be looking at this um, that I'm working on right now. Um, but the Japanese government actually begins many of the projects that become the hallmarks of land reform policy by SCAP. Um, so, you know, the, the land reform by SCAP is its own separate category, but I mean, SCAP basically ends landlords, uh, agricultural landlords with the land reform policy, you know, and putting into its place um, small, well, reasonably sized independent land holding farmers. That's the system that, that comes out by the, by 1950. Um, but this is not created out of whole cloth by the SCAP and more, it's really based a lot on what was already going on during the wartime in Japan. And, and some things are, are left as um, sort of plans that are not quite realized by by the central by the Japanese government during the wartime. Other things are based on movements that were actually already taking place. Um, so I don't think it's SCAP that that creates the biggest change in this agricultural system. SCAP certainly brings to a conclusion the the land reform that may or may not have come out in a somewhat similar form if the I guess the war had gone on forever, which it wasn't going to do anyway. But um, uh, at, at any rate, um, you know, it, it, I, I think it was being sold as much newer than it actually was, much more revolutionary, at least compared to what was already happening than it was. So this is your new project? That's what you're working on now? It's your new book? That, uh, yeah, it's uh, an article that I'm working on now, but I hope to, to work on it into a book, yes. Oh, it's great. And again changing everything I thought about uh, rule about the land reform again the land reform uh, always seen as some kind of like a big break or sold like some kind of a big break I mean in some ways of course it is a big break but you know in other ways less so <laughs> yeah right thank you uh, thank you for your time today thank you for uh, for coming uh, on the podcast and uh, I hope to have you again uh, talking about this next book I hope to write another book that's worth talking about. Yes, but thank you very much. I'm sorry for my long-winded answers, but it was a great chance to, to talk with you um, and, and discuss this, this kind of stuff. Um, thanks a lot. Yes, thank you.